Loving Father, we ask that you please speak to us for our comfort and our instruction. Help us uh, to know better how to follow Jesus and how to walk with you. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, just about everybody is a bit insecure about the future because none of us really knows what's in store for us. Um, I don't know about you, but I have lots of things that I would like to know. Um, I would like to know, for example, where my kids are heading. Um, what are they going to do with their lives? Uh, are they going to marry? And, and if so, I'd love to know who are they going to marry? Uh, what are the twists and the turns uh, that the lives of my kids are going to take? I'd also like to know the twists and the turns that my life is going to take in the future. Um, is there bad health or injury coming for me at some point soon? Uh, will I live longer or shorter than average? Is Joe, my wife, going to outlive me or will I outlive her? I'm quite interested in that question. Um, I'd like to know how things are going to turn out for a lot of the people that I care about. And I'd like to know what's going to happen with lots of things that are going on in the world. I'd like to know what's going to happen in the Ukraine and when it's going to happen. I'd like to know about Taiwan. I'd like to know where all this climate change stuff is going and whether humans are going to be able to fix it, as people say that maybe we can. And I would like to know whether Jesus is going to return before any of this happens so that I know whether to worry about it or not. But of course, I realise uh, that God has good reasons for not telling me any of these things that I would like to know. We humans uh, feel very clever sometimes because um, we have science and we, we have the internet and we have so much information that we can access, but actually we're still very much in the dark uh, with life. Um, we don't understand why things have happened in the past. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. We are actually, we live our lives surrounded by mystery. We live our, live our lives in, in a fog with very limited vision. And that mystery makes us insecure. Some time ago now, I went to a local shop here in Springwood that advertises psychic readings. And uh, I asked what it was all about. Um, I, I probably look like the sort of person who doesn't frequent that shop. Uh, she didn't have to be a psychic to tell that I didn't, wasn't really a believer when I asked into the psychic readings. Um, but she humoured me and she gave me an explanation. She basically said that the psychic acts like an antenna. Um, the psychic tunes into the spirit world for you and picks up whatever she can for you that's relevant from the spirit world. Uh, it might be something about your past or a prediction for your future or some little piece of information or a message from beyond. It might be from a dead loved one. It might be from just any whoever is out there in the spirit world wanting to send you a message. The psychic will tune in. Isn't it interesting that with all of our modern science and information and knowledge, there is still a job for psychics in Springwood? People are still desperate for any clarity that they can get about their lives and about their futures. And they resort to all kinds of superstitions in order to feel in control of what they can't see. Um, they wear lucky socks to job interviews. They reserve those socks for special occasions where they need extra luck. Uh, they don't walk under ladders because that brings bad luck. They wear charms around their necks to ward off bad luck. They maybe put stuff around their house to make sure that the evil influences clear out of the place. But how does the Bible urge us to deal with the mysteries of life? Can we do better than superstition? Uh, is there any certainty in the fog in which we're living? So these are the big questions that Daniel 2 addresses, uh, and we're going to look at it under two main headings, which are there on the outline. Clash of religions, superstition versus faith, 
and Clash of Kingdoms, the human versus the divine. And once again, the story here is being driven by the tension that's created when a handful of exiles from Judah who were faithful to God are plonked into the pagan court of Babylon. So there's a clash of religions, first of all. In the ancient world, culture and religion was full of rituals and superstitions designed to give people some sort of a handle on life. Uh, it's no surprise to hear that King Nebuchadnezzar had wise men in his court. It says here, verse 1, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers were on his payroll. Their job was to read the signs and give Nebuchadnezzar guidance from the spirit world. So they were kind of in-house psychics of the king of Babylon. Not unusual at all. Uh, but it was an uncertain time for Nebuchadnezzar. Not everything was going his way. Conquering the world is a fairly stressful thing to try. Uh, a lot to worry about. And in verse 1, it says, his mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And in all his stress, he has a wild dream. Now, in Babylonian culture, dreams were a pretty big deal. When you dream, it was thought that's the time when the spirit world is uh, likely to send you messages. So a big part of the wise men's job was interpreting the dreams of the king. And they had big dream books uh, to help them to interpret the meanings of the dreams. Uh, but Nebuchadnezzar here goes further than just telling them uh, to give them him an interpretation. He commands them to tell him the dream and then the interpretation. And he decrees that if they fail to tell him the dream as well as its interpretation, then he'll have them cut to pieces and their houses will be pulled down. Obviously pretty unreasonable, um, but that's what, how kings, that's what kings could do in those days if they were in a bad mood. Uh, and so the wise men play for time and he accuses them of being frauds. Verse 9, he says, You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. So this is his little test of whether, they're worth, whether it's worth having them around. You know, why, why do I pay these people? Why am I still in the dark about what's going to happen? Do they actually know anything? I'll give, give them a little test. I'll make them tell me the dream, not just the interpretation. And then I'll know that they're the real deal. They protest. They say, you can't expect too much. Uh, verse 11... What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans, they say. Now, that is a very revealing comment there in verse 11. Basically, what they're saying is the gods are distant, and the gods keep their secrets, and you really need to know how to handle them if you want anything from them, and there's no way they're going to tell us the contents of your dream as well as the interpretation. That's asking too much of them, and they're really not all that keen on helping. So there's a whole worldview there in what they say, in which, there, yes, there is another realm out there, and it holds mysteries that would be really helpful for us, but it's difficult to get any help from there. You need to know the magic formulas, and even then, there is a limit to how much help you're going to get from the other side. Now, all of this, that answer was not particularly satisfactory for Nebuchadnezzar. It says he's angry and furious in verse 12. He wants answers now. And he wants a guarantee that those answers are reliable. He is the most powerful man in the world, but he is in just as much, he's just as much in the dark as anybody else. And the best answers that money can buy are still just superstition and guesswork from these people who he doesn't know uh, are the real deal or not. 
So he's angry and furious. Most people don't get as angry and furious as Nebuchadnezzar at the lack of answers. I mean, he's got delusions and grandeur. He thinks he should be able to get anything he wants. So he says, give me answers. And they can't provide them. Most people, of course, just get on with life without knowing the answers. They can only kind of see that far in front of them. And so they live for what's right in front of them. It's kind of eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. And that's the way most Australians live. They can't see very far past the fog. And so they just live in the here and now. But somebody who knows God knows better than that. And so Daniel enters the story in verse 14. He learns about the king's decree, which threatens him as well. He handles the news with wisdom and tact, as it said. He doesn't ask the king for mercy. He asks the king for time. And then he asks God for mercy because he knows who the real power is. Uh, And God grants Daniel and his friend the mercy that they ask for, and he reveals to Daniel the contents of the dream and its interpretation. And Daniel thinks, thank you, God. And he responds with praise in verses 20 to 23, which is more than just a little thank you. It actually says some very significant things. Verses 20 to 23, Daniel says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons, he deposes kings and raises up others, he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things, he knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, you have given me wisdom and power, you made known to me what we asked of you, you made known to us the dream of the king. It's been described as kind of the theological centre of the chapter, those few verses there. And what he's saying is a big contrast to the pagan view of the gods. Firstly, Daniel's saying there's just one God who rules over everything, including kings and empires and geopolitical movements and everything else. One God over it all. Secondly, this God knows everything. All the secrets are his. And he's willing to tell his people what they need to know. Unlike the Babylonian gods, he reveals secrets. he, He gives wisdom. And thirdly, we can actually have a relationship with this God. That's what Daniel is claiming by praying to God in this way. Uh, Daniel didn't need all the hocus-pocus to get what he wanted from distant gods. He just spoke to God, his God, because the Lord was his God and he knew this God personally. So he just went and he, okay, okay, friends, let's talk to our God together. And that's how it worked. And in the end, it's knowing the Lord personally that gives a person security. It's not knowing all the answers. You could have a magic ball that you shake and it gives you all the answers whenever you want them, but that's not as good as knowing the Lord personally. Uh, As the saying goes, it's, it's not knowing the future, it's knowing the one that holds the future, that is the real comfort and the real security. So you see, there's a huge difference between faith and superstition. Biblical faith is not believing at a distance in some process that might work for you, Biblical faith is knowing and relying on a God who's promised that he is for you and he's with you. Uh, And if that was true for Daniel, it's even more true for a Christian. And this closeness of our God to us is the main reason why Christians have no need for superstition. His son died for us. His spirit is with us. His word is open to guide us. His ears are open to our prayers. So we don't need psychic readings. If you have God with you, you don't need charms or lucky socks that you wear on special days. Um, 
You can walk under all the ladders you like, you can pat all the black cats you want to, you can break any mirror you like, and it's not going to make any difference because God is with you. Uh, you don't need dream books or crystals or tea leaves or palm readings or any of that sort of stuff to tell your fortune. You know your fortune because the God of the whole universe is your God. And so that's why all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, God's people have been told to avoid occult mumbo-jumbo and rather trust the God who has drawn near to them because he is our God and we know him and we can trust him. And so we don't need to play games with hocus-pocus stuff. If you're a Christian, do you realise the privilege you have in knowing God and having him near to you? Pagan gods, they don't live among humans, said the, the, the Babylonian wise men. Our God has put his spirit inside us and lives within us. You walk with the God who knows what lies in darkness. He knows all the secrets of the universe. He knows and controls the future. And he is your God, the God whom you know in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, he doesn't tell us every detail about our future. I still don't know how my kids are going to end up or whatever. Um, why doesn't he tell us all those details? Well, because he wants us to trust him. He wants us to walk with him by faith. But of course, there are big mysteries that he has revealed to us. He's revealed to us everything that we need. And these mysteries that he has revealed can give your life hope and meaning, which people don't have, who just sort of grope around in the fog. Perhaps the biggest mystery of all that God's revealed to us is here in the contents of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which is in the second half of the chapter, which we didn't have time to read, unfortunately. And the second half of the chapter concerns the clash of kingdoms, the human versus the divine, and the outcome of that clash. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream was all about what God's doing in history and the very big picture of where the world is going. Um, you might think, where is all of this heading? Where, where is everything going to end up? What is, what is, what is the universe going to come to? We're told here in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, verse 31, in the dream, there's a giant statue which Nebuchadnezzar sees. It's enormous and dazzling and awesome. And the statue represents human rule in the world. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of different statues representing all the different kingdoms. There's just one statue to represent human rule as a whole. And the head of the statue is Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, golden head. Then another kingdom is the chest and the arms made of silver. Another is the belly and the thighs made of bronze. And another is the legs of iron with feet of part iron and part clay. We're not supposed to try to identify the different kingdoms in this statue and or different stages of history, but rather we're supposed to see it as a whole. It's the spectrum of human rule from one end to the other. God established humans to exercise dominion over this world. How is that going? That's what we see in this statue. And it's quite flattering to Nebuchadnezzar because he is the head of gold. Daniel says to him, you are the king of kings in verse 37. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar is described as the ultimate human ruler. Got to be happy about that. Um, but there are a couple of things that might have been concerning or sobering for Nebuchadnezzar. First of all, Daniel's also saying to Nebuchadnezzar, you only have this position because God gave it to you. Uh, and it's not going to be forever. And you are accountable to God. And secondly, overall, this statue shows us that human rule fails. The statue is fragile, it's easily toppled over. Uh, human rule is only as strong as its weakest point, 
and the worst of human rule is described or represented in the feet of this statue, which are a combination of hardness, iron, and brittleness, clay. Uh, so there's a weakness to the whole edifice of human power. And we know that that's true, don't we? We know that human power is very weak and very fallible. Uh, we feel that when we look at the world, you know, um, the UK at the moment can't find a prime minister that's any good at all. They just keep kind of well, they're giving up or whatever. Uh, we look at people who run the superpowers of this world, the, the Chinas and the Russias and maybe the Americas and whatever else, and there aren't many characters there that you would describe as gold. It's a fair bit of iron and clay, I would have thought. And the question is, what's God going to do about it? Humanity is kind of hopeless when you look at it from this point of view, in, in my opinion. Maybe you're a little bit more optimistic. But where is history going and what's, what's God going to do about it? Well, in this dream, having set up human rule, which proves to be weak and flawed, in the next part of the dream, God obliterates it by setting up a kingdom that comes from heaven. In verse 34, a rock cut from a mountain, not by human hands, is hurled down to earth and smashes into the feet of iron and clay. And it brings down the whole statue. Every part of the statue shatters into millions of tiny pieces and they all just blow away in the wind. And then this rock from heaven grows into a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. So the point is that where humanity fails to rule the world as God intended, God himself will intervene from heaven and he will do it himself. He will shatter human pride and human power. He will come into the world directly in a kingdom that will never be destroyed and will endure forever, in verse 44. So you see, God had given Nebuchadnezzar a view or a vision of the long-term future and it involved the end of human rule and the establishment of the kingdom of God. Now, if you've read your New Testament, you will know that that has now, what is proclaimed there is that that has now come to pass. Uh, when Jesus launched his ministry on earth, do you remember the words that he said, the first words that he said in his public ministry? He said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has drawn near, repent and believe the good news. So the rock from heaven was hitting the world, Jesus was saying. And of course, he died on the cross to establish this kingdom. He rose again. He promised to return and judge the world. And we are now, in, now waiting for that day when the statue will fully and finally collapse. And we are watching the mountain of God's kingdom growing in the world. It's all happening. And so we know what God is doing and we know where everything is going. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul uses this word mystery. He says, God made known to us the mystery of his will. That is what God is up to to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream, the kingdom of God in Christ, sweeping away all other rule and authority and taking over the world. Now, you might think, well, this is all very good sort of theory and it's all very big picture sort of stuff, but this is very useful information for you and me. In fact, it's much more useful than knowing when you'll die and how you'll die or how your kids are going to turn out or whether you're going to be rich or poor or whether China's going to invade Taiwan. What's here in the Bible is much more useful than that because this information tells us how to invest ourselves in this life. You could invest yourself in human kingdoms. You could maybe try setting up a little kingdom of your own in your own little fiefdom. 
in which you get your way and the glory goes to you and, and everything that you've achieved and it won't last, this, uh, this chapter is telling you. On the other hand, you could invest in the kingdom of God in Christ and live under his rule and live his way and for his glory and you'll have a place in the kingdom that lasts forever. Now, the main obstacle in choosing the kingdom of God over your own little kingdom might be pride. We are profoundly selfish and we want things to go our way and to, to, to revolve around us. Nebuchadnezzar here was very excited that he got an answer to his mystery. He was very excited to find somebody who could not only give him some sort of dodgy interpretation, but also tell him the dream. So there's really something there. And he thought, great, I'm impressed by this Daniel and by his God. And so he falls prostrate uh, before Daniel. But you get the impression that he was mostly excited about having a new resource to use. Oh, fantastic, I've got someone in my court who can give me some real answers for a change. It wasn't as if he came to faith in Israel's God or gave up the quest for his own glory, not yet at any rate. The challenge here is whether we will turn away from what we are trying to build for ourselves and surrender everything to Christ and the kingdom of God and get on board with what God is doing in his universe. It's very tempting to put faith in human power, whether our own power or other powers, and we can impress ourselves and impress each other by doing great things and you might become the Nebuchadnezzar of the political world or the Nebuchadnezzar of the business world or your own little Nebuchadnezzar of the schoolyard or Nebuchadnezzar of your workplace. Um, even churches sometimes have little, become little cults of personalities and have their Nebuchadnezzars that rule over like a head of gold. But human rule has feet of clay. Uh, putting your hope in what people can do is doomed. We have limited vision, we live in a fog, but the two assurances that we're given in this chapter are, number one, God is with us. If you're in Christ, God is not detached from you, he's not distant, he's not unwilling, he hears your prayers, he cares for his people. We don't see everything clearly, but we personally know the one who rules all of history, and that's a great assurance we're given here. And secondly, we're assured that God will take control of the world. He has now sent his Christ, his kingdom is growing, Christ will return. And so we don't focus on the human statue, we focus on the heavenly mountain. And that's where hope and meaning is to be found in this life. That's something solid that you can invest in. Why is it that uh, we're so insecure about the future? Uh, why is it that we want answers to all our little questions about how things are going to turn out for us? And some people go to psychics and tea leaves and, and they want answers. Well, it's because we don't want our own little statues to topple over. You know, we set up our little statues and we, and we want them to, to be glorious and we don't want them to fall over and so we want all these little answers. Uh, but we see here that trusting God brings greater comfort and putting our hopes in his kingdom is a better investment. And if we do that, if we do focus on walking with God and investing in his kingdom, then perhaps we'll find that all of those little questions that we have and all those little mysteries are not so troubling to us anymore because we have hope and meaning somewhere else other than in ourselves. Uh, and I think that that's the challenge of this chapter. 
uh, for us to appreciate what we have in Christ, in the kingdom of God, and to invest in that. So uh, let's pray that God helps us to do that now. Loving Father, we thank you that you have not just revealed wonderful things to us, but that you have made yourself available to us, uh, that we can actually know you as our God. Lord, we pray that you would help us to take comfort and assurance from that. And as you have revealed to us what you're doing in this world, especially through Jesus, we pray that you would help us to invest in that kingdom, uh, not to look to the little statues, but to look to the heavenly mountain. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.